It's great seeing you here today. Today around the world is Orphan Sunday, and when you think about serving orphans, you may think about adoption or child sponsorship or mission trips to orphanages, but there are many ways to serve vulnerable children, and one of the significant ways that we have taken up as our church is something called Safe Families. Uh, We've actually invited Safe Families here today. They're in the lobby. Uh, Safe Families enables you, the church, to serve uh, a family who may be in need temporarily. Uh, Perhaps a parent is having a surgery or going through rehabilitation or temporary homelessness. It's an opportunity for the church to come alongside, take some children into their home, a child, or two or three for a week or two weeks, a month, two months, three months. It's not long-term, but a a temporary temporary, uh, opportunity to serve those who are vulnerable and need in the Chicagoland area. My wife and I, we had a chance to do it this this past spring. We were able to bring a 12-year-old boy into our home for a couple weeks. It was um, a great opportunity to get to know him and his mom. And so if you're you're in a spot where you are single or a couple or even have children, uh, if you can bring a child into your home. And I want to encourage you to go out and talk to uh, safe families who are here this morning. I'm really a fan of what they're doing in their ministry. And I want this to be a big deal for our church. So I want to pray for God to stir up uh, us as a church to serve vulnerable children, but also want to pray for our, our country uh, as our country is, is very divided as you have uh, many people rejoicing this past week and many people mourning. Uh, as Christians, we, we know that, that God, for whatever reasons in his sovereignty, raises up people to leadership and, and puts people down. And we also know that King Jesus is the true sovereign overall. But I just want to talk to you, and I'm not talking to you politically here, I'm just talking to you as your pastor. As I've had interactions with uh, people in the church this week, I've had interactions where some of our brothers and sisters are very, very fearful. And this is not a sore loser type of thing, it's like really fearful. Talking to one brother based upon his ethnic background feels as if rightly so, because of what some of the things that have been said, that he is a target. And this is, this is like a real emotion and a reality that, that people are very fearful, even among our own membership. And it's not time to be dismissive and say, oh, just get over it, it's no big deal. Like, this is, this is some, some legit fear. And it's a time for us to say, no, we're with you, of compassion and mercy and grace and truth speaking. And, it, and it's not a time for us to be dismissive. It's time for us to be united in Christ and united with our brothers and sisters. And as we move out into the world to offer them the hope found in the gospel. So I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for vulnerable children. And I just want to pray for us as a church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just, I just think about first the, the children that are vulnerable in, in our city and even in the world. And, and that they're not even thinking, they don't know nothing about an election. They just know that either moms or dads are fighting or not there and they need a place. They need a place to stay. They need some food, they need some love, and I just ask that you would stir up a, a single person in here, a couple, a family, to say, you know, it's time to jump into the safe families thing and, and open up our homes, and open up our homes uh, to serve. And Lord, I just continue to pray for our divided country that you would have mercy on us. And we know from your word that you raise up leaders and you put down leaders. We know that you're the true king forever, and our goal is to be on your mission but Lord, even with all that knowledge, some are hurting. And I pray particularly for those who are scared, 
and rightfully feel as if they are targets of hate, objects of bullying and intimidation, Lord, have mercy on us as a church to to intervene, to be involved, to love people, to encourage others. As people who have been bought with the blood of Christ, show us what it means to intervene and love those who are fearful, to offer grace and mercy. And Lord, I, I just believe that in your sovereignty, each person is here this morning not to hear my words, but to hear your words. My words will offer nothing if they're not backed by your words. And so I ask this morning that something significant would happen as you bring all the power of your word and your spirit to bear upon us this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You need to hear what I'm about to say. Make sure you hear what I'm about to say. Are you ready for this? I wrote this sermon weeks ago, regardless of the outcome of this election, all right? It's weeks ago. Same is going to hold regardless of what the outcome was. Now, keep this in mind also. I wish I had a national platform, which I do not. I wish that I could speak to the churches in America, and that's my intent through this sermon is, is not necessarily to speak to those at EBF, and that's there, but I wish I could speak to the American church. And, and I'm grateful that the, some folk from Ocean City are here. You guys here? A little shout out. Yeah. That's a crew summer project. And, and you're from all over the place, right? Yeah, you're from all over the place. You're from different churches. So thank you for my national platform this morning. <laughs> And I know a lot of you are from different churches from around America. You're here. You're not going to be here long. So I'm, this is not just addressed to I'm thinking of the broad American church. And, and I want to take this sermon that I wrote several weeks ago. And may it apply to the broad American church, apply to EBF, apply to us as individuals. Okay? So that's my caveat. Don't forget that. All right. Here we go. I'm often fascinated by the way Christians interact with culture. I'm often fascinated by the way Christians interact with politics. A refrain you will often hear, and it is nothing new. I saw it in my days when I went to Arkansas Tech University back in the 90s. I saw it in the 2000s when I lived in L.A. I've seen it in Chicago since I've been here. But something I will often see from Christians is that they are calling our nation to repent. You'll see it on social media, and you will hear it throughout pulpits throughout the land, especially during the political season. You will see many Christians calling our nation to repent. And to all that, I say this. Sure, our nation needs to repent, but the church must go First, Some argue that our nation has drifted and needs to repent, but I push back and I'll say, you know what? The church has drifted and needs to repent first. We need to repent of our idolatry. We need to repent of our materialism. We need to repent of our sexual morality. We need to repent of our racism. We need to repent of our lack of concern for the vulnerable, our lack of concern for justice. And if I can sum it all up, I would say we need to repent of our arrogance. 
feel like we are an arrogant church existing in this nation, and we have swagger. We need to repent of our swagger. The church was never supposed to be this arrogant and proud bunch. The nation needs to repent, but the church must go first. And that's the call from the Word of God this morning to us here, not just at EBF, but as you come from all over the country. And it's the call of Jesus originally aimed at the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there. We are going to the book of Revelation, and this is the church that just happens to show up on this Sunday that we're going to talk about. And we're just asking that the words of Christ to Laodicea would hit us as well. So let's go ahead and stand as I'm going to read the passage to you. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may be clothed yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." And salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. Over the last seven weeks, as we've gone through these churches, we're saying, all right, Jesus, what are you saying to us? No different here this morning. Look at the details of this seventh letter. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Laodicea was an area of economic prosperity. They had a medical school, many banks, and flourishing textile industry. In AD 60, they had a devastating earthquake, but the city didn't take outside financial help from Rome, but rebuilt the city on their own. This prosperity and self-sufficiency mindset also infiltrated the church. Once again, this church has swagger. They think they are epic in all that they do. This is an arrogant church, but they do not realize that they are spiritually poor, empty, and complacent. Of all the churches listed in chapters 2 and 3, this church has nothing good about it. 
Jesus does not commend even one thing about this church, but offers them a dire rebuke to the point where judgment is coming if they do not repent. Each week as we've gone through the seven churches, Jesus often gives a self-identification that matches with what's going on in the church. Do you see his self-identification here? Once again, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen. That's the idea of truly or trustworthy, the God of truth, indicating that, that Jesus is authoritatively truthful. He's also the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's not created, but he is the creator. Notice again that it says that he is the faithful and the true witness. He's identifying himself as one that speaks truthfully to what is true about God as he is God. And as we will see, that this is a compromised church. It is a compromised church who has failed to witness And so Christ's self-identification is a call for repentance and invitation for the sinful church to follow in the witness and the ways of Christ. And you will always see this. A compromised church will be a non-witnessing church. I'll take it even further. A compromised Christian will be a non-witnessing Christian. If you hold to the gospel, then you're going to want to share it with other people. But if you're not eager to share the gospel, you must examine your life and see where you have compromised with the world. For Laodicea, they compromised in their self-sufficiency, in their prosperity, and in their arrogance. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and either cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I know that when you've read this in the, in the past, maybe you've thought, okay, hot means an on-fire Christian, right? And cold means someone who's, who's cool in their faith. They've kind of cooled off. They need, to be, they need to be hot. Not the case. Hot and cold are both positives, in this culture, and often in ours too, hot water is good. Uh, back then it was for medicinal purposes. In cold water, you want that for drinking. But lukewarm water, especially in this culture, was either good for uh, medicinal purposes or for drinking. And it could make you perhaps even throw up. And it's been said that the Laodicea, they, their, their water system was not good at all. So they have to have their water pumped into their city. And by the time it arrived in their city, it was lukewarm. And the people would often complain about their water supply because they'd have to take the water. They'd have to warm it up to use it for some purposes or let it sit there and cool down so they could drink it. So Jesus takes the situation of their water supply and the state of their lukewarm water, and he refers to the state of the lukewarm church. He says that they are so lukewarm that he is about to spit them out of his mouth. Basically, he's saying, you make me want to puke. Now, there are a lot of things that can make humans throw up. I have six kids. I will not get into too many details. But when we first had kids, we were paranoid, uh, as young parents are, that their kids are going to drink something or eat something poisonous. And I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, but I remember that my wife and I, we had this 
this liquid in our kitchen, I think it's called, I'm saying this wrong, Ipecac, it's what we called it, uh, that you would give to your kid if they ate something poisonous to make them throw up, okay? So we had it there. When our kid was about two, my firstborn son, my wife and I went on a date, and the babysitter, I don't know, she was like 12 or something, she's watching him, she calls us, she's like, your son is crawling around and he just ate a pill. Should I give him that stuff to make him throw up? No, 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 no. 12-year-old, no. We're not going to give you this stuff. So we're not going to let her give that stuff to make our son throw up. So that's one example of throw up. All right. Another example of throw up, two-year-old. This time, my oldest daughter. I don't know what it was with my, my first two born kids, but they liked to eat and drink stuff that they weren't supposed to. But my daughter, firstborn daughter, when she was two, she decided that she wanted to take a big swig of alcohol. That would be rubbing alcohol. You ever seen your kids do that? Mm. Didn't go so well, but it made her, yeah, throw up. Like I said, I'm going to stop my throw up stories there. They get worse. The question is, what is making Christ want to vomit out this church? What is the deal? Well, like many of the churches here, they're steeped in idolatry and the worship probably of the emperor along with the gods associated with the emperor and the trade guilds as we've seen, the labor unions have their own god and all the sexual morality that goes along with it. But we see primarily that what makes Jesus want to throw up with this church is their arrogance, their arrogant prosperity, their self-sufficiency, their swagger. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, look at this. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They're so deceived, thinking they they eat nothing. They have it all together. They have money. They're self-sufficient. They boast of their riches and their prosperity. And and by the way, by the way, I think you as a Christian, you can handle suffering far better than you can handle prosperity. And you're like, "Uh, give me a chance, please. Give me a chance. Suffering draws you closer to the Lord. It refines you in the fire. But prosperity may make you think, you know, I don't need the Lord. I got this. I'm good. And that's what this church is doing. They're rich. They're prosperous. They're an arrogant church that needs nothing. But Jesus hits them with the truth. Did you see the truth there? Verse 17, look at that again. Here's the spiritual reality. It says, you are wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. They are spiritually poor, they are spiritually blind, and they are spiritually naked. And this is a great setup, and I want to make sure you, you hit this, you don't miss this. Until you see your spiritual poverty, you're never going to come to Christ and buy for him what you cannot afford. I'm going to say it one more time. Until you see your spiritual poverty, then you are never going to come to Christ and buy from him what you cannot afford. Is that confusing to you? Like, how can I buy something from him I can't afford? It's good. Verse 18. 
He'll tell you. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They need a solution to their poverty. They need a solution to their nakedness. They need a solution to their blindness. All right, let's, let's, take, their, let's take their poverty, okay? Now check this out. The city is filled with banks, financial industry, prosper. Church is prospering. But Jesus says, you are spiritually poor. You need to buy something. You see what they need to buy? They need to buy gold refined by fire. That's, that's your character. That's, your, that's Christ-likeness. Those are riches in Christ. And, and the way you buy this Christ-like character church is through, we'll see in the next verse, is through repentance. It's through repentance. Repentance and faith in Jesus. And look what else I need to buy. They're also spiritually naked. He says, okay, you're naked. Buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness. And it's ironic that Christ mentions white garments because Laodicea was known for its production of expensive black wool. They could be all dressed up and and looking sharp. Jesus says, no, no, you are naked. You have expensive clothes on, but you have a discount heart. God, the judge, sees and you need to buy these white garments and be clothed in the holiness of Christ. And the only way you can buy them is through repentance. And not only are they spiritually naked, but lastly, we see that they are spiritually blind. Look what they got to buy here. It says they must buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be see. Now, I bet they were familiar with the concept of eye salve. Apparently, they had a medical college that created a well-known eye salve that was sent throughout the empire. And what Christ is doing, he's making a connection to their need for spiritual salve. Their vision is blurred, so they cannot see. Their sin has clouded their judgment, and they need to repent to see again. So here's the idea. You need to buy something you can't afford, and the only way that you can buy it is through repentance, and you'll get it. You'll get the grace through repentance and faith in Jesus. The only way to take care of your poverty and nakedness and blindness is to make a spiritual purchase that comes through repentance. And this is in the Old Testament. I have this great verse I want to put up for you, two of them. You can look at this later, but let me put it up for you now. Isaiah 55. This is, a, this is kind of what Jesus is saying right here. Isaiah 55. This is... God speaking to his wayward people, Israel. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich Food. Now, now, did you catch that in the middle? He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He's speaking spiritually. He's speaking to you. Why spend your time 
and your efforts and your money on those things that do not satisfy. I know you think material wealth satisfies. It does not. Idolatry does not satisfy. Worldliness, sexual morality, these things do not ultimately satisfy. The only thing that ultimately satisfies is something you cannot afford. And that is grace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can buy it is through repentance and faith in Jesus. You cannot earn these spiritual riches. They are earned for you through the perfect life and the death of Jesus Christ. As he was buried and rose again. And now all the riches in Christ can be yours. But the only way that you can buy them is through repentance and faith in Jesus. My brothers and sisters, if you have strayed and if you've gone off the deep end and you're into some stuff right now that you should not be into, and I I had a conversation this week, me and my friend were talking to this guy, and he's thinking this. He says this, you know what? He's like, I know Jesus, and I want to follow him. That's what he's saying. But I need to clean up my life first, and then maybe I'll fall. No, 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 no. You cannot make yourself worthy to follow Jesus. You don't have enough money, and you don't have enough effort. You have to buy something you can't afford. And the only way that that comes is by grace, through repentance and faith in Jesus. Even as a believer, it's not that you all of a sudden become a believer, and now it all turns into effort. What? Still grace, through repentance and faith in Jesus. Look what he says in verse 19. This is still Jesus talking. For those who love to dismiss the book of Revelation, they say, just give me the words of Jesus. Okay, red letter, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here it is. So be zealous and repent. For those of you who say, you know, I don't want to discipline my kids because I want to to love them. And if I discipline them, no, no, discipline is love. And the father treats you as kids as he disciplines you. It is love. If you were way off on your sin and God's bringing hard things your way, that is loving because he only rebukes, reproves, and disciplines those whom he loves. And if you find that, that you're off into some, something you shouldn't be into and God is pressing on you, bringing stuff into your life, he says, so be zealous and repent. I want to make sure we understand what's going on with repentance. I, I try to do this often. This is repentance. Repentance is not, I feel sorry for my sin, God, please forgive me, and then go do it five minutes later, right? Not repentance, all right? Repentance is this. I'm walking towards sexual morality, idolatry, racism, injustice. I'm moving this direction. Repentance is, this is not good. And I turn and I go this way toward Christ and his ways and his kingdom. And if this is told by God's grace, this is by God's power. I'm going towards something that I want is Christ, it satisfies. If you just think, I'm going to turn away from all that bad stuff to nothing, then you're just going to go back to the bad stuff, right? So you're turning away from the bad stuff because you want something that is far better. It's grace, it's mercy, it's reconciliation, it's peace in your life. That is true repentance. Be zealous, switch around, and go toward Christ. And now to the famous verse. Here's the famous verse that we've all used wrong. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And I'm sure we've used it wrong because we've used it in evangelism. That Christ is knocking on your door, unbeliever. You just need to open it up and let... No, no, no. Don't use that anymore in evangelism. Just repent of that now. <laughs> because this is a verse addressed to... Yeah, the church, right? Believers. He's talking to them. He says, you know what? I'm the head of the church and I'm knocking because I'm not inside. Let me into your church again. You've kicked me out by all your sin. He's knocking. Let me in, church. Let me in. Let me in. Let's have a meal together. Maybe that's the meal in the kingdom or maybe it's like the meal in the Lord's Supper. Can you imagine this? There are churches all around the world. They're celebrating communion right now. Right now they're celebrating communion and there's a knocking on the door because Christ isn't in there. Let me in. Repent. Let me in. He wants to have this fellowship with us or be renewed with us in a relationship with him. We don't want Christ knocking on the door. We want him among us. Verse 21, finish it up. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not only do the believers get to share a meal with Christ, but here it is, they get to reign with him. It's likely a reference to the millennial kingdom, which we'll get to later on, or the new heavens and the new earth. But get this. We get to reign with Christ one day. And in order to reign with him one day, we got to go low. we got to admit our dependence on him. What does the Bible say? Lose your life in order to gain it. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And this losing your life and humbling yourself comes to those who repent and look to Christ and Christ alone. And I, what you'll often find, this call to repentance and renewed fellowship, you will see, if you start to see a church really start to get this, you will see a church starting to be revived. And that's what we want to see at our church. That's what I want to see for those of you who are from different churches. You want to see a movement of people turning to Jesus. And when you start seeing that, even within the church, you'll start to see a revival. And when that revival starts happening within a church, it can spill out into a, a community and start to sweep up other churches and, and other people who don't know Christ, and you can, you can start to see a revival. But that's, that's never going to happen unless it starts with individuals repenting and trusting in Christ. And that's what we want here. Every four years at Evanston Bible Fellowship, every four years we do something called prelude to revival. Now, I'm just curious. This is to show you how much our church turns over. How many of you were at our last one four years ago? How many of you were not? Most of you. All right. So every four years, we do something called prelude to revival, and it's typically in the first week of March. And this will be a full week, six days, pretty much six days of preaching, praying, and worship. Get this, morning and night. We'll get together early in the morning, 
5.30. Do you know what that time looks like? And what's, what's awesome is college students have in the past aggressively shown up even at 5.30 in the morning. Do not let us down this time. <laughs> Showing up for prayer. We will hear preached from the word of God in the morning and the night. And people ask, well, why do you only do it every four years? Well, we only want revival every four years. Now, we just do it every four years. It's just what we do. I don't know. <laughs> but it's prelude to revival. These are things that tend to happen before a revival breaks out, right? You tend to see God's people stirred up in prayer, stirred up in worship, stirred up through his word, and stirred up through repentance. And that's what's coming in March. But let's not wait. Let's not wait. Let's go to the Lord and repent today. You know where you have drifted. And, and, and don't just think this. Don't just think, oh, yeah, so I know some of you, you need to repent clearly of sexual morality, right? And you need to walk toward Christ and purity, right? But there, but there are some of you, you need to repent for your lack of concern for those who are suffering. We live in a city, broad city, filled with tremendous suffering and violence. And as I started this sermon, I talked to you about a ministry called Safe Families, where you can actually do something for vulnerable children, many of them who are caught up in this, where you can bring them into your home. Part of repentance is turning away from you, your part where you don't care. And I guarantee you, even if you're a college student, if you go up to Safe Families, you say, look, I'm a college student. Uh, I don't think you want kids living in my dorm, but where can I help? And I bet you they'll tell you. We want to be a church who wants to stop walking toward compromise and start walking toward Christ. And this morning is a morning to repent of our swagger and our arrogance and humble ourselves and repent and turn to Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that this morning that people would stop buying stuff that is worthless. They would stop spending their money and their time and their effort on things that are just hurting them that do not satisfy. And they just bring your discipline. And Lord, as you are disciplining a variety of your children here this morning, may they respond to that discipline and truly repent. And Lord, where we have become an arrogant church with swagger and trying to be epic, trying to be awesome, thinking that we rule the day, Lord, may we repent. May we repent as individuals, may we repent corporately, and may we come to Christ who offers us a meal, fellowship, renewal, revival. And may we find that in Christ and Christ alone. And may we not wait for a future day of revival, a future day of renewal. May that start today. May we examine our lives, examine what's going on, and turn to you and find in you everything that we need. We want our hearts to run after you and find in you true and everlasting satisfaction. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.